0: By now, you should have found your way, hopefully, to Matthew chapter 13. And as we look at Matthew chapter 13, we're going to see in this passage, verses 53 through 58, the old proverb come to life. The proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. Ever heard that before? Familiarity breeds contempt. That is to say, the more time you spend with someone or in a particular environment, maybe your work or, uh, or, or even just a hobby that you have, the, the more time you spend getting familiar with someone or something, the more you tend to dislike that thing or that uh, environment. It's a strange paradox at play. You would think that the more familiar, familiar you are with something, uh, the more joy you would take in it. But very often we find ourselves with. Close friends, maybe people we've known for a long time, spend a lot of time with them. And, and, and over a period, we grow to find ourselves in contempt of that person. Every little thing that they do bugs us because we know them so well a good friend in, in uh, high school, and right after high school, uh, we went on a, a sort of educational trip through Europe for about three weeks. I spent three weeks with like two of my best friends in all of the world, and by about a week and a half in, we wanted to kill each other because we just spent so much time. Every little thing just bugged us about one another. A couple years after that, I went to uh, live in an apartment with that very same friend thinking that things would be better. And sure enough, like three months into the six-month lease, we were just at each other's throats. Still good friends uh, to this day, but all the same, just that closeness, that familiarity tended to breed contempt between us because we're too familiar. We knew each other's faults too well. This proverb, familiarity, breeding contempt is like being blind to something that's just part of the backdrop of your house or your office or your closet. You ever been looking for something and, and it's like right in front of you, but you can't find it because you've seen it in the same place every single day? Only instead of being grateful for when you find the thing that you've been looking for that's right under your nose, instead of being grateful and happy about the thing that you've found, instead you're angry at this thing, you despise this thing, you find yourself wishing it were never there at all, you want to get rid of it and just buy a new one. Familiarity breeds contempt, and just as much is true of Jesus when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth as part of his ministry just as much as true for us who are followers of Jesus, that, that we can come dangerously close to being in contempt of the things that we find familiar. Especially even of, in the faith. True discipleship, true acceptance of Jesus as king is to lay aside all of our assumptions and expectations of what Jesus can do or what he will do or what he will call us to do. We need to lay aside our assumptions of the things that, that we assume are familiar to us in the faith our expectations of things that are familiar to us in the faith, so that we might encounter them freshly each time we come to them. Let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58, and see how familiarity breeds contempt among the Nazarenes, and to see how this uh, applies even to our own lives today. Matthew 13, verses 53 through 58. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all of his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There's really one point to this whole passage, but I have managed to strain out four sub-points as well. The main point of this passage there in your worship guide, Jesus was rejected. Jesus was rejected. Now for the subpoints. He's rejected by uh, one, one group of people in particular, but there's three things that characterize these people and then and their unbelief. And we also see the cause for, uh, for their rejection of Jesus. So first, verses 53 and 54, Jesus was rejected by those who heard him teach. He was rejected by those who heard him teach. Here in verse 54, we see that Jesus, like he does everywhere else he goes in his ministry, goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and goes to their synagogue. The synagogue was like the local church today, only it was where Jews gathered in a particular area for worship, for hearing the law, the Old Testament to be read and interpreted, understood so that they could obey it. Jesus goes there and he teaches. He opens up a scroll and he reads from it. We read in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, uh, this same uh, event in Jesus' life. But Luke gives us a little more detail. He tells us what Jesus actually read. He read from the scroll uh, of Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, where Jesus says uh, he comes to uh, preach good news to the poor and to bring uh, liberty to those who are spiritually oppressed. And then he tells the people there in the synagogue in Nazareth, today, in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. Jesus declares that in his uh, preaching of the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, uh, that it is being fulfilled as he's preaching, that the kingdom is coming, that the king is here. So he teaches in the synagogue there in Nazareth. He even teaches to the astonishment of the people who hear him teach. Look at what, they, uh, look at what Matthew says about the people in verse 54. He taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Initially, upon teaching the people, the Nazarenes there in the synagogue are astonished with the wisdom that Jesus speaks with. It's the same response to what we see to the crowds that we're hearing Jesus preach at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. If you flip back just a, a couple pages there, look at this. This is right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. The same word that Matthew uses of the Nazarenes in their synagogue. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. The people hear his teaching. They're astonished by his teaching. And then they immediately go on to question him and to reject his teaching and to reject his authority. The point of this part of the passage is this, that many people will hear and read and even be astonished by the teaching and wisdom of Jesus and still reject him as king. Many people will hear his teaching, many people will read the Bible and appreciate Jesus as a master teacher and yet still reject him as king, still reject him as messiah. How important is it then for we the church, we who call ourselves Christians, we who bear Jesus's name as part of our own identity as a Christian. How important is it for us to not merely be impressed by Jesus as a teacher, but to be controlled by Jesus as a teacher? You know how you know, how you know if, you're, if you're actually listening, paying attention to someone's teaching? You go and do the things that they taught. You go and do it uh, also. You replicate those things. If you just show up to a university class and you sit in on a lecture and, and listen to a professor lecture for an hour, two hours, three hours, and then walk away and do nothing with what he taught, have you really received their teaching? Is your life being changed, being controlled by their teaching? Church, does God's word control your life? Does it control your life? Are you looking at every situation in your life through the lens of the gospel and God's word? Is God's word controlling your life? Have you submitted to Jesus' teaching, Jesus as king, who is master teacher, by allowing him to control the way that you think about the world, the way you understand what sin is and and who has it and who needs to be rescued from it? Are you being controlled by God's word in your life? Or are you rejecting Jesus' teaching, merely being impressed by it? Reminds me of James chapter 1, verse 22. I think we looked at this just a couple of weeks ago, but it's just a really pertinent reminder to us today. James writes to the church, James 1.22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, thus deceiving yourselves. Church, we need to be doers of God's word. We need to receive Jesus' teaching, internalize his teaching, be changed by it, apply it to our lives, and then live it out. Otherwise, we're rejecting him. Otherwise, we're rejecting Jesus. If you're not being controlled by his word, you're not being controlled by the king. Jesus is rejected by those who heard him teach, but he's also, secondly, rejected by those who saw his works. Look at verses 54 and 58. In verse 54, the people ask the question, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Verse 58, Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The people in Nazareth, as he's teaching in the synagogue, they're astounded by uh, certainly by his teaching there in the synagogue, but also by the mighty works that he has performed, not just in Nazareth, but also in the region of Galilee, where he's been ministering all in the Gospel of Matthew up to this point. We saw in Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapters 8 and 9 uh, several miracles and healings that Jesus performs, and certainly the word of these miracles would have made its way throughout all of the region, so the people of Galilee know what Jesus has been doing. His reputation has preceded him. But he also does stuff in Nazareth. Look at verse 58, even amongst an unbelieving people. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. but he did some. If Matthew wanted to say Jesus did not do any mighty works, any, didn't perform any miracles, couldn't do anything in Nazareth, he would have said so. But he just simply says he did not do many. So it's not that Jesus does not give any evidence that he's a a divine healer, a wonderful miracle worker. He does give evidence in Galilee, in the region broadly, and in Nazareth specifically. And yet people see those things and disbelieve. The point of this is that I think many people in the world, we know this to be true, will be witness to the miraculous power of Jesus to change lives and they will still reject him as king. People will see the transformative power that Christ has in the lives of those who believe, and they will still disbelieve that he is king. They will still disbelieve that he is God, that he is the only savior that we need. They will hear life stories and testimonies from believers to the power of Jesus to rescue them from sin and lives of desperation to give them wholeness and contentment in Jesus alone. They will see lives transformed by the gospel, and they will still disbelieve that it's possible. How necessary, how critical is it then for the church today to not only to be controlled by Jesus in his word, but also to be continually transformed by Jesus each and every day. How important is it that we demonstrate the wonder working power of the gospel of Jesus in us to the world every day? Christian, how is Christ transforming you today? What is he doing in your life? What is he changing you to be? How is he changing your outlook on the world? Men, how is he Using you, what is he doing in your life to, to love your spouse and your children in a more Christ-like way? Women, how is Jesus transforming you to love your husbands and serve your families and serve in the church? When was the last time you looked to Jesus to give you boldness and opportunity to share the, the whole gospel, the full gospel with your coworker or even with your boss? Student, teenager. Young person, have you so given yourself to the transformative power and work of Jesus in your own life that you stand out as a follower of Christ in your school, at your job, amongst your peers, even amongst professors and coworkers, bosses? Not as a self-righteous Bible thumper, but as a compassionate lover of souls who has found greater contentment in Jesus than in the temporary pleasures of popularity and sex and success and physical comforts. Is Jesus transforming you in a visible way in the place that he has you among your peers? Christian, is your life and your soul, is it substantively different from those around you because Jesus is transforming you? Oftentimes we take this for granted that I, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And so I've been saved. And, uh, and then we just kind of assume that all the other stuff happens later, but we don't always submit to the transforming of Jesus in our lives. We trust him for salvation. And then we kind of draw the line there. We don't trust him to help us to be better husbands and fathers. We try to do that on our own. We don't trust him to make us better wives and mothers, We don't trust him to make us more faithful children to our parents. We don't even ask Jesus or expect Jesus to make us more faithful to the church body that he's called us to. We just assume that that happens or that we can do it in our own efforts. Church, you can't. None of us could save ourselves in our own efforts. None of us will, will change our sinful ways in our own efforts. None of us will be transformed into the character of Christ by our own efforts. Is Jesus changing you? Is he working in you or have you refused to allow him to do so and thus rejected him like the Nazarenes? Jesus is rejected by people who hear him teach. He's rejected by those who saw his works. And then in verses 54 through 57, we see that Jesus is rejected by those who knew him best. He's rejected by those who knew him best. Verse 54, we read that Jesus goes to his hometown We know that his hometown is Nazareth. That's where he grew up. Small little sort of podunk town in Galilee. A city of of little repute. But still, it was his hometown. And that is where he goes to teach. And he teaches in their synagogue. He performs uh, wonders and miracles in their midst. The people are in awe of his wisdom and the miraculous things that he does. And yet, just as quickly as they are in awe of who Jesus is and what he does, they immediately shift to a position of incredulity. They don't trust him. They don't believe that this can actually be true. They're questions that they ask Jesus in the synagogue or that they ask themselves of Jesus. Reveal to, them that they know, reveal to us that they knew Jesus quite well, right? They say, is this, verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James, John, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are not all of his sisters with us? Didn't we see this kid in diapers when he was, you know, just a baby? They know him really, really well. They know Jesus, they've seen him, they've observed his entire life, and yet they don't believe in who he is. In their disbelief, verse 57, they take offense at Jesus. They're offended by him. The word that Matthew uses here in the original Greek is the same word that we get our English word scandal from. They were scandalized by Jesus. That word that Matthew uses, scandalized, is used more by Matthew than any other Bible writer in in all 66 books of the Bible. He uses this word to mean uh, to cause someone to sin, to cause someone to fall away from faith, to stumble, to take offense or to be offended. And most of the times that Matthew uses this word, uh, he's indicating the sinful offense that is taken by someone from a challenge to their loyalty to Jesus. That is when Jesus makes a claim about... How he is the only way to the father or or about the narrow road that is required to enter into the kingdom. People are scandalized by these statements are offended by these statements. When Jesus demonstrates his power and divinity, people are scandalized. They're offended by it because they know what is true and yet they do not want to believe it. That's what causes a scandal. Here in Nazareth, the whole town is thrown into scandal because little Jesus that they all knew when he was just toddling around the city is teaching with authority greater than the scribes. And the Nazarenes seem to just, they just know that this can't be who and what Jesus really is. He's a carpenter. Somebody trained as a rabbi. That was a pretty impressive talk that he gave. But really, I mean, we've known this guy. Friends, be aware of this today. Many people who are well acquainted with Jesus, church people who think they know Jesus really well, are very familiar with Jesus, will reject him as king and deny the work that he is doing each and every day. Friend, have you ever found yourself, Christian, have you ever found yourself so well acquainted with a, with a person that you, wish to, you begin to wish that you didn't know them so well? Like me and my buddy that I went to Europe with and lived in an apartment with? knew each other. So well. I just, just began to wish, man, I did. I wish I didn't know him so well. You ever known a brother or sister in the church? Don't raise your hand that, that you knew so well you didn't, you didn't, uh, you didn't wish you knew them so well. Familiarity breeds contempt. And that is true among the people of Nazareth, of Nazareth. They knew Jesus. they were familiar with Jesus. They watched him grow up and yet they have nothing but contempt for him. They despise Jesus. They ask him these questions, like, Who do you think you are? Coming here, telling us this. Now in church we don't often don't don't so often run the risk, at least as Christians, of of looking Jesus square in the face and saying, Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? But sometimes we do run the, the, the risk, we do, run the, the, uh, we, we do risk the, the danger of allowing familiarity to breed contempt in us in other ways. For as much as we talk about the gospel and things like sharing our faith and helping others to follow Jesus, when the call comes to us from God's word to again be reminded of the gospel, and when we're challenged to be evangelists in our everyday lives and to walk alongside other believers to help them follow Jesus... Do we not also then out of contempt for the familiar say things like, oh, this again? We just talked about the gospel last week. Give me something different. We laugh, but don't we? God, man, Christ response. That's the gospel. We talk about that every single week. But have you ever found yourself in the middle of a sermon, whether I'm preaching or somebody else, where they're reviewing the gospel and you sit there and you go, oh, this again? As though we could ever get tired of the gospel. As though the gospel ever loses any of its beauty, any of its splendor, any of its wonder or awesomeness. That the God who created the universe and created you and knows you by name, knows the number of hairs on your head. The fact that he sent his son to die for you, be raised from the dead so that your sins could be forgiven and you can be right with God. That ever gets old? That ever gets boring? Oh my goodness, may it never be. It's like a diamond sitting, a diamond ring sitting on your dresser at home that you never move and you see it from the same angle every single day and you begin to wish you had a different diamond or that it was a little bit bigger or that it sparkled a little bit different, a little bit different way. Rather than just leaving it, you know, whatever, just responding to it that way, pick it up, look at it, let the light shine on it from a different perspective. Friend, do that with the gospel. Pick up the gospel, pick up God's word, let, let God shine himself all over this word that we might see Him for how beautiful he is. We say things like, oh, here we go, talking about evangelism again. That was in our last week's Sunday school lesson. We're going to talk about sharing Jesus again. We get it. Let's move on already, right? Give me something else I can do. As though Jesus has called us to any more important task in this life. Say things like that, discipleship stuff. Yeah, that that might be fine for some people, but I'm good on my own, right? I've gotten this far in my faith. I don't need anybody else to help me. As though Jesus saved you to be on an island all on your own. As though you never go through challenges or difficulty or hardship in your life. That you need the help, the, the prayers, the, 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 the community of believers to carry you through difficulties. And yet, we hear these things like gospel, evangelism, discipleship. They're the three most important things that any church can talk about on a regular, on a regular uh, basis. And we despise them because we hear them so much. Yeah, I've heard the gospel. I know all about that. I've heard about evangelism. I know all about that. I've heard about discipleship. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Tell me what I need to do with my money this week. Right, tell me how to be a better dad. Okay, fix my marriage. As though the gospel can't work in any of those things. As, the, as though the gospel doesn't transform those things. As if sharing the gospel with your children doesn't help, you to, make, help to make you a better father or mother or grandmother or grandfather. As though walking alongside other believers in life that doesn't change who we are and bring wisdom into our lives and, and change us in the power of Christ. And that we have these, just these buzzwords that we just kind of throw out as soon as we hear them because we're so familiar with them. We've grown contemptuous of them. Friends, let us not do that with the gospel. Let us not do that with God's word. Let us not do that with Jesus. Let us never grow tired of the wonderful name of Jesus, of the full gospel. Let's never grow tired of God's word and reading it and understanding it and growing in it. Amen. But I think there's some secondary application from this verse as well. Particularly as we look at Jesus the individual in the home, being rejected by his hometown. People that saw him grow up. First of all, Christian. Maybe you're a young Christian and you're just trying to grow in the faith and you're, you're struggling there. Do not be surprised and for the mature Christian as well. Do not be surprised when your family and friends reject your conversion and your conversations about Jesus. Jesus was rejected by his, the people that he knew best. So when you are displaying the power of Christ in your life, don't be surprised when your friends, your family, maybe even other believers, reject the things that God is doing. Don't be surprised. Secondly, do not assume, believer, that a person's upbringing determines what God can or cannot do in their life and through their faithfulness to him. Do not be like the Nazarenes who would say, who's this Jesus? He's a woodwork. Jesus, stay in your lane, man. Don't you know? Don't ever assume that God can't, what God can or can't do or will or won't do in the life of a person who today may be really, really far from God, but God is drawing them close, drawing them near. Let us not despise the work of God and other people. Church collectively... Let us not despise the calling. Let us not discourage the calling and gifting of young people among us that are called to ministry. We have some in our church, young men, young women, that God is calling into vocational ministry, to the mission field, to plant churches, to be youth pastors, other things. Let us not discourage them. Let us not ever let verse 57 be true of First Baptist Church West Albuquerque, that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own people. Let it, let it be true that, that those that uh, among us, especially as this local church, is, this is what we have control over, okay? Is this group right here. Let it be true of us that we don't, we don't discourage or dishonor those that God is calling, but we honor and we support and we encourage those that God is calling. Amen. That when we see young people that we've known since they were in diapers, being called by God to serve the kingdom, that we say, amen, praise God, brother, sister, how can we help you? Amen. For the young person who's called today, No matter how, you who are sensing a call by God to ministry. Or maybe you're just a Christian, you're sensing called by God to do something that seems radical in your life and to those that are around you. No matter how your family or your friends or even people in your own home church may respond to or reject your calling, your gifting for ministry, your call to radical discipleship. Remember this, you have a call from God to fulfill. Be obedient to that call. But listen... God's also given you a church, a family of faith, to come alongside you and help you. And so if your family of faith is compassionately and encouragingly coming alongside you and saying, you know, brother, I know you've got this call to ministry, but I see this, this, and this in your life that aren't consistent with that, Um, it just makes me wonder, can we work on this together? Listen to what your church family is saying to you, young person, you who are called to radical discipleship, right? If, if people are being discouraged and they're just despising you, that's one thing. But if they're encouragingly helping to, he, trying to help you to grow in your calling, to grow in your faith, listen to them. The church is God's gift to you as a believer. And Jesus is rejected by people who hear him teach. He's rejected by people who saw his mighty works. He's rejected by people who knew him best. But that, those aren't the reasons why they reject him. Ultimately, the reason they reject him, verse 58, is because of their unbelief. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The nature of their belief, I think, is inherent in the questions that they ask. Who is this this Jesus? We know him. We know his dad. We know his mom. We know his brothers and his sisters. Who does this guy think he is? Their questions indicate that they doubt that Jesus is or can be the Messiah. They doubt Jesus's ability to be what he's demonstrating that he is. They disbelieve in his identity and in his capabilities and his power. And the result of their unbelief is that Jesus does not do many wonders there in Nazareth. Now, certainly several times in Matthew's gospel already, think especially in Matthew uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, we've already seen the link between miracles being performed by Jesus and the faith of the people who are receiving healing or having demons cast out of them. And likewise, we've seen the link between the need for faith in Jesus and, uh, and salvation, right? If you want to be saved, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, you've got to trust Jesus. There is no other way. So we've seen the link between faith and physical healing and faith and especially spiritual healing throughout the gospel of Matthew. But here in Nazareth, the absence of Jesus's power on display, the fact that he does not do many miracles is not a statement of Jesus's inability to perform the miracles. Rather, it's an indictment upon the people of Nazareth for not believing that he could. Realistically speaking, there's not a thing that Jesus could have done in Nazareth to no matter how great a miracle to convince them of who he was. So why bother? Jesus has shown, he's given evidence in Nazareth and all around uh, Capernaum and the area, the region of Galilee, that he is the Christ. If you doubt that, go back and read through the first 13 chapters of Matthew. But the Nazarenes, his people, presume that he cannot be the person he's giving evidence to be. As a result, Jesus doesn't do any work among them because it wouldn't help to convince them. What the people of Nazareth need is not a miracle from Jesus' hand. What they need is repentance from sin in their hearts. They need to turn from the sin of unbelief to see the evidence, to see the signs, and to receive them as, uh, for, for what they truly portray. Now, the Nazarenes disbelieved in Jesus' abilities and in his identity. They disbelieved what Jesus could do, what he could be. But I think in the church, we, we tend to have a, a tendency, I even in my own life, to display a different kind of disbelief. Not in who Jesus is and what, what he can do. Certainly, we affirm Jesus is the Son of God. He's the promised Messiah, right? We, we affirm all that he did for us on the cross and in the resurrection. We know that there is salvation in his name, that he can save us. But oftentimes, we disbelieve not what he can do, but what he will do. Or put it the other way, we believe certain things, or we believe that Jesus will not do certain things. All too often our familiarity and complacency with our personal Christian experience and the experience of the American church dictates for us what we believe Jesus would or would not desire for us to do as we follow him obediently. We say things like, I'm too young, I can't, I couldn't preach, there's just, you know, everybody else would just look down on me, I, I couldn't do it, I just, I wouldn't do it, Jesus wouldn't call me to do that, he knows who I am, why would he do that? Or I'm 75 years old. I've been retired for 10 years. Jesus wouldn't call me to West Africa to preach the gospel amongst an unreached people group. Unreached people group. Wouldn't he? All my kids are grown. They're out of the house. This is, I'm an empty nester and I'm loving it. Jesus certainly wouldn't call me to open up my home to a child that needs a safe place to live. Wouldn't he? We have all of these conceptions, these assumptions in our heads about what Jesus will do or won't do. Jesus won't grow our church with those kind of people. We're all the way here on the west side. Jesus, certainly he wouldn't call us to go downtown to minister amongst the homeless and the mentally ill. They're just, they're too far away. Why wouldn't he? Why couldn't he? And yet we make assumptions. We have expectations about what kind of life we we, we should expect to live as believers. Disbelieving all the time that, that Jesus could actually, might actually call us to do really hard things. Church, is it at all possible that Jesus wants to do mighty things in you, in your life, among our little church on this corner in Taylor Ranch, wanting to do wonderful things that we're unwilling to allow him to do? Is that possible? Is it possible? Is it possible that Jesus wants to do mighty things, great things for his name, for the Father's glory, for the spread of the gospel among us that we're unwilling to believe that he can do? Nah, Jesus can't do that. That's too big. Is he desiring to do things? Is it possible that he's wanting to do things among us that we're, even worse, unwilling to want him to do? He's calling us to do it. We know that he is. We just really wish that he wasn't. What we see in these final, this final verse of Matthew 13 is that the primary reason that people do not receive Jesus as king, the primary reason that people don't receive Jesus as savior is because they do not and will not believe that he's king. They won't believe it. How important then is it for us, we who are Christians, who say that Jesus is king, to actually believe that he is and to act like he is and to follow him as a king wherever he leads. In 1936, a hymn was composed, a hymn called Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. You know this hymn. If you don't know it, you, you'll know that you know it in a second. A hymn that we love and we've sung often in the church, but I think that in our singing, we've not actually, we've not actually internalized the words of this hymn. I'm going to read the words to you. And I want you to think about whether or not this is actually your, your prayer, the orientation, the position of your heart when it comes to Jesus as king. Verse 1, take up thy cross and follow me, I heard my master say. I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. He drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know. And in that will, I now abide wherever he leads, I'll go. It may be through the shadows dim or or the stormy sea. I take my cross and follow him wherever he leadeth me. Friends, Jesus may be wanting to call you, may be desiring to call you through dim, dark, shadowy times in your life. Through stormy seas. Not because he wants to give you more than you can handle. Although the the Bible never promises that he won't give you more than, than you can handle. Oftentimes what he wants to do is give you more than you can handle so that you can let him handle it for you. Jesus often calls us into hard, radical, difficult expressions of discipleship as believers. We do well to follow him. My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. He is my master, Lord and King. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. We should have but one assumption about Jesus as master, lord, and king. That he is able to call us to follow him in hard and radical ways. That is the only thing we ought to assume about what Jesus can do as king of our lives. To call us to follow him in difficult, radical, stormy sea kind of ways. And we should have but one expectation of Jesus, that he would do just that. Not just that he's able, but that he will. And when he calls, when he calls us to, to shadows dim and over the stormy sea, we would say, yes, Lord, yes, wherever you lead, I'll go. Nothing holds me back. I knew that you would do this. Now you're doing it. Here we go. Friends, rejecting Jesus does not just come in the form of outright disbelief. It doesn't just come in the form of people who are saying, Nope, not a real person, don't believe in him, God's not real. That's not the only way people reject Jesus. It also comes in the form of hardened disobedience to his will, even by we who call ourselves Christian. Even we who are believers, who are in church week by week, even in God's word daily, we are not immune from contempt because of familiarity. Understand today, friend, if you're not a Christian, you're not trusting Jesus this way. You are presently rejecting Jesus. You are presently rejecting his ability to save you from your sin and to transform your life. And I pray today that, this would, that today would be the last day that you reject Jesus. That today you would see that he is not just a great teacher, not just a wonderful miracle worker, not just a familiar figure in history, but that he is king, he is the son of God, and that he has died to save you from your sins and been raised from the dead to give you eternal life. Trust Jesus today. But Christian, let us today, we today who run the risk of of being contemptuous about things of the faith because of our familiarity with them, Let us today repent of familiarity and complacency in our faith in Jesus. Let us today repent of saying things like, oh, the gospel again. Let us today ask God to be merciful to us for our sin of neglecting to share the gospel with the lost. And for our neglect of our brothers and sisters that that are walking with Christ and, and need help in that, God, help us to repent from that. So that we might not, in the future, unknowingly, unwittingly, Reject God's will, Christ's will in our lives and in our church. Let us repent of that today. In the vein of this whole idea of familiarity breeding contempt, uh, very often, uh, just about every week after we preach from God's word and hear from God's word, we have a time of response. And usually that's through a song and we all stand and we wait for people to come forward and then we get disappointed when they don't as though God somehow failed in the response time. Today, we're not going to respond the normal, familiar way. We're going to respond to God's word in an unfamiliar way, and this may breed contempt in your heart this morning. I hope that it doesn't, but here's how we're going to respond to God's word today in your seats where you're at. uh, I'd like you to just bow your heads. We're going to spend some time in silent prayer to God asking that he might not let us fall into the trap of familiarity in our faith.